Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. As we continue our worship through the Word, this week our text is Ephesians 3, starting with verse 14. You can, I believe, read along with me as I read this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that, has surpa- that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, and let's all say together, amen. Lord, we just praise your name. We thank you for your word, that God, you are so much bigger and so greater than we can even comprehend. Lord, would you help us to fight our flesh this morning? God, would you just stretch us and get us outside of our comfort zone, God, to just be more in awe of you? God, would you grant us this morning a better picture than we have today as we walked in here of who you are and what you have done for us. And God, may through that, may we be changed. May our worship be changed. May our prayer be changed, God. May our mission be transformed because of this truth this morning. We love you. We praise you, God. And we ask that you would lead us this morning, Lord, and just let us follow. We praise your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, man, I went to a conference this weekend, so I am ready to go. Uh, yeah, uh, we had a good time. Uh, so this is uh, our We Are series, still in Ephesians. Uh, today, uh, we are going to finish the third chapter of this book. If you have... Uh, been here for a while. Hopefully you kind of realize what that means. I've been trying to keep it ahead of you uh, pretty much every single week. Uh, We're going to hit a hinge point in the entire book uh, really today and shifting into uh, next week. So I mentioned the first half of this book is full of declarations about the gospel. Right? That, that's what it is, over and over and over, declarations about the gospel and then a prayer. And the second half will kind of filter into uh, not just declarations about the gospel, but implications of the gospel for us in our lives. So basically chapters one through three will tell us what the gospel does in us, and it will declare who believers are in light of the gospel. This is who you are because of Jesus and in Christ. That's one through three. Then four through six is going to teach us, okay, this is how you live in light of who you now are in Christ, right? So the second half, I'm, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it's less declaration uh, and, and possibly more challenging uh, words for us to learn how to live in the identity that we have been given, 
the whole point is take up your identity and walk well in it. Live out the identity that has been given to you, that has been bought in blood for you. These are the things that we have to keep in mind to walk out the identity given. So Paul kind of brilliantly lays out this section, knowing that there's a transition this week into to next week, and we'll kind of point out why it's brilliant as we move forward, and, and hopefully that will make sense. But before we get there, uh, when I say the following things, you're probably familiar with them. We hear them all the time. But when I say things like, you know, I, I need a rest. Uh, I need to recharge the batteries. I need to get some downtime. I need some R and R. I need to have some me time. Man, I'm just so tired. I need to be refreshed. I need to be, uh, maybe you would say rejuvenated or revived. Or maybe I need to be re- renewed. Or maybe your lingo is, you know, I just really need to bounce back. I need to be restored. Uh, here's the way that we'll say it often. I need a vacation. I need a nap. I need a week-long nap. I need a break from everything. I need a break from everyone. When we say any of those things, what we're talking about is a theme of strength, or you could say we're talking about a theme of power in our lives. Those statements all scream one thing together, even though they're said different ways. They're saying, I'm super tired, busted up, and worn down right now, uh, which means my reserve of power and strength and energy at this moment internally is, is super, super low. I'm on empty, and the dash light of my body is on, and it's just screaming. I have little to nothing left, and I need to be filled up so I can bounce back or else I'm going to be in serious trouble. Uh, The general idea of not having an unending power supply in our lives all the time, this idea of needing to be fed or recharged is kind of universal to us in some senses. Everyone knows that we will run out of energy and strength and power. Right? If we don't find ways to get topped off and filled up, we will run out. Uh, This needing of strength, uh, it's a physical reality for us. Right? We know it. I need it physically. But here's the thing. It is also a spiritual reality for us. The physical side is more obvious, though, or it's possibly more widely agreed upon. While the spiritual side, that one kind of causes us some problems because we tend to ignore it or, or dismiss it or cyclically just not, not, not really relate to that at all. And I think we can see this, right? It, we all know if we don't eat for an extended period of time uh, that we're going to crash, uh, if we don't have food, uh, we're going to, to break down really quickly. If we don't have sleep, we're not going to function very well. We'll become weak. Our mind will start kind of going bonkers. We've seen, especially new parents, in sleep deprivation, their mind just doesn't go very well. We need to be recharged. And if we're not for very long, our body will literally shut down for us. The problem for us uh, can be that uh, these physical needs for new strength are, are different because they're easier to diagnose. Right? It's easy to tell if you have a hunger headache. I've literally seen more than one of you throw hanger temper tantrums. Like It's easy to see when you need food. Uh, those dark circles under our eyes, they tell the story that we haven't slept very much. Those scenes are almost impossible to, to miss, and they're, they're really easy to decide, well, maybe I should kind of deal with that. Maybe I should kind of confront that. But a need for spiritual strength and to be refreshed in power in our soul, in our hearts, well, well, that one's different because it's a little bit tricky because we can hide from that for a long, long time because though our spirit may suffer when it is really weak, physically we won't die and we can just kind of bull forward and keep going. 
Our physical body will let us keep rolling even when our spirit is, is, is kind of dying metaphorically and we're running on empty. Paul is going to pray in this text and address specifically that. He's going to pray for the believers in Ephesus and for us that we would have spiritual strength inside of our being. Not physical strength, but Strength in our core, in our soul, in our heart, in our faith, uh, in the deepest parts of who we are. Before we dig into that prayer, his desire for us to have strength or power spiritually, uh, I want to make a, a connection to the general mindset. Before we get to the second half of the book, which remember is implications of the gospel, this is how you should now live because of what God has done, before he ever gets there. Uh, before we're ever asked to live anything out, to, to, to fight, which is going to be coming on the second half of this book. It's going to tell you to fight literally, uh, to put on the armor of God, to fight against the enemy who will be coming after you, to diligently uh, be careful about how you treat each other, the church, how you treat your husband or your wife if you have one, or your kids if you have one. Before it does any of that stuff that will require effort and an awareness and intentionality, before we get anywhere close to that. Paul first is just going to pray for you and I to have strength before we get there. It ends up being a super shepherding, a super pastoral, a super kind way. Before I ever ask anything of you, I'm going to ask God to strengthen you so that you can walk out well the reality of who you've been created to be in God. Uh, this is important a lot of times, right? Because we can just kind of put our heads down and try and get things done on our own power. And Paul's like, no, no, I don't want that for you. I want the Spirit to come. I want the Spirit to strengthen you. That's why he does this prayer shifting into the next part of the book. So the book over, the text opens up with Paul saying, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We should realize something. When he says that I bow my knees, it wasn't like metaphorically, like he literally fell on his face. I bow down to my knees. I, I went down to, I, I did not stand on my feet anymore. It's not just like, you know, mentally, God, I'm bowing. No, no, no. I, I fell down to my knees before you. This is for this reason, though. And, and whenever we see therefore or for this reason, it's a clear cue for us that the author wants us to look uh, why he's saying that. It's kind of a cause and effect situation. So we're wanting to look what is the reason that sent him down to his knees. And the cause that sent him down to his knees is going to be chapters one and two. Paul is reflecting on God's amazing grace, and it puts him down on his face. Just let that sit for however awkwardly it needs to. The grace of God sent him down. Paul's reflecting on this grace, and he could not stand. When Paul just marinates on the declarations found in the gospel, when we've gone through them, God has called us. He's adopted us into his his family. He's made us his very own. He has redeemed us. He is, he's actually forgiven us. Christ died on our behalf and defeated the problem of our sin and defeated the weight that sin held over our lives. The Spirit has literally given us faith in places that we didn't even have it. The Spirit has sealed us into the family of God as well. God has brought us from death to life spiritually, and he's raised us up with Christ, seated us on high with Christ above anything that we deserve. There you go. And he's made us his church, his people. The point of the text last week was the scandalous nature that he made us his people no matter what race you are. There's no longer a demographic of God's people. It's just sinners who have been saved. When Paul sets his gaze on those realities, you have done all of that. It's too heavy to stand. 
It's as if Paul is teaching us and showing us, okay, how could I just stand there and not be moved? Like, how does that work? How could I say those things? Or how could I write those things? Or have somebody else write those things down for me and just be like, eh, you know, NBD. Make sure you get the period, right? Did everything, everything look good there? Okay, we'll move on. You can't do that. These truths caused Paul to worship God. That's what happened there. This is why he's falling to his knees. It's worship. Humility before the Father, because what the Father has done, I am overwhelmed by you. Hear me, it is a dangerous and scary situation to think of us getting used to the tenets of grace and being able to talk about them and sing about them and do things surrounding them. It is a dangerous and scary thing to be able to navigate around all of that and have our hearts never be moved by it. Can we just, can we just claim, like, that's weird. How could that happen? You have been brought from death to life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it happened. God calls sinners to himself because God gave his mercy and love to them. Because God has dressed sinners in the garments of Christ's righteousness and not our own, thank God. And then he makes them not second-class citizens, but loved family, and they didn't earn any of it. It was freely given. This, this is just kind of recapping Ephesians. Paul stops in the middle of that. Oh, God, that you would do all of that, and I, I did literally none of it. And he falls down on his face. Now, I want to be careful here because I, I found myself in interesting territory this week and, uh, and even through talks with, with, with Garrett o- over the last couple weeks. I, I want to I be careful because I'm not trying to create a sense of duty in you. Because Paul wasn't trying to brag about his religious chops in Ephesians, right? Like, hey, I was on my knees because I'm super Christian and whatnot. So, like, you guys, you stand there, and, but, you know, I, I bow. Like he's not trying to do that. And he didn't feel required to do it either. There, there wasn't some unwritten rule that before he transitioned, like, I better bow on my knees and tell him I did so. That was not what happened. He was just overwhelmed. So without trying to manufacture a sense of duty, the question has to land on our hearts. How often have we been moved to respond to the gospel in any form of unique ways? Whether it's falling down on your knees in desperation and humility. Or lifting your hands in worship as a sign of surrender and need. Right? What, what, is, what is lifting your hands? It's a, it's a, it's a submission. I, I need you. right? I give up. I'm not good on my own. Take me. Uh, Father, pick me up. Like All of these things are what you're doing when you raise your hands in worship. But it is, I worship you. You are worthy of it. I don't care what anybody thinks. You are good. Pick me up. I submit to you. When's the last time that we kind of gave ourselves over to those things? When's the last time that the gospel overwhelmed you to the point of a tear coming out of your eye? Like, if you've been around for a long time, like me and Garrett are just like closet criers, so like you don't have to be just like us, but when, right? (laughs) Not closet at all, thank you. But seriously, those actions aren't a sign of superiority in our culture. They're signs that our heart is palatable. Not just tears, but hands raised, knees bowed, 
They are signs that we will worship God in response to his goodness and what he has done, no matter how we emotionally feel in that moment. I would strongly argue that when you don't feel like raising your hands is supremely the time that you need to. Again, the last thing I want to do is manipulate a physical response from you towards God. But would you consider asking God to work in your heart in a fresh way? Begin to just dialogue with the Spirit. Like, why? Why am I not moved? Would you consider, if you're never moved in worship, to, to do any of those things to, to begin? And let's, let's teach us something for a moment, though. We have to realize that those are not things that certain groups of people, to bow our knees and lift our hands, they've been taught for thousands upon thousands of years. Nay, they haven't been taught, they've been commanded. This is what we do because God is deserving of it. Check back in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, right? The, the call to worship that we read this morning, for this reason I bow to my knees. These are not Pentecostal actions. These are not just charismatic actions. These are Christian actions. The pliability of our heart has much to do with whether we will engage in them. My heart has been specifically burdened for this over the last couple weeks. Especially if I'm just super honest with you, last week at the beginning I wasn't playing drums and I found myself in the front and I kind of walked to the back and just kind of looked around us. And, And again, I'm not trying to manipulate you, but to see us hear words and stand completely unmoved. Okay, maybe we need to warm up and have the gospel, and luckily at the end, like, we worship well, but my hope is that God would change the culture of how we worship. Hear me, to where it would not be shocking if someone were down on a knee. Right, what would happen now? You're like, what? That should not be the case. We should repent over that. Oh, God, we are still moved by you. We're not trying to create a culture of, look, look at the super religious guy. But man, we don't want hard hearts. I hope the difference between manipulation and encouraging us to participate in the ways of worship that the Bible just clearly says, do this. I hope that makes sense. Paul was wrecked by the gospel to the point he just couldn't stand. No, 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 it, it doesn't matter. I, right now, I need to do this. Yeah, you've got a, a letter to write. Yeah, well, whatever. Like right now, how can I stand here and act like this isn't a big deal? So he bows to his knees because of what God has done. It says this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you kind of look at the call to worship this morning, he's, he's kind of quoting pretty much Psalm 95 in the beginning of this prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, for our hearts even to just kind of wrestle with what that means to be filled with the fullness of God the Father. So here it is. Yes, Paul is moved to bow to his knees because of God's grace and mercy. It sends him down. But also he goes down to his knees to pray in desperation. 
God, I need you to work here. I have no other choice but to depend on you. I am down on my face and on my knees pleading with you. And he, and he prays reverently to God the Father, the same God who in power created and named all things according to the riches of his power and his glory, the God who holds such power in his hands. Paul will bring several requests in this text to him. One by one, they'll kind of climactically rise. The first request that opens up this prayer comes as Paul asks God, strengthen believers with power. It's not the physical rejuvenation we're talking about, it's that inner part. Strengthen their inner being. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Not through their good works or their diligence or their, their ability to muscle up. Strengthen their inner being through the Spirit. In their very soul, God, give them power. Why? So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, when Paul prays for power here, again, he isn't praying for you and I to have the power to muscle through. He isn't praying that believers would be able to get going when the going gets tough. He isn't praying that we would kind of have this result of inner positive thinking, that we would think well of ourselves and be strong because we said good things about ourselves so we could move forward. He's not doing any of that. He's also not praying that you would have the power to turn over a new leaf. Paul is legitimately praying that God would give you and the church in Ephesus supernatural strength, power in your inner being for a reason, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Think about that, that he may live there, that he may reside there, that his home may be there. When I was young, I remember hearing the term all the time, and depending on if you grew up in church or what kind of church you grew up in, uh, this, this was said all the time uh, to, to, to kids, like, would you like to ask Jesus in your heart? Now, often it was trying to kind of, um, we have to be fair about this because we always have to kind of confess. So it's trying to get even kids to confess their need for Jesus and, and to, to make a decision to be saved. It was viewed as a one-time deal, though. Would you like to, Wednesday night, ask Jesus into your heart? But Paul seems to be kind of praying for, for something like this, but to happen every single day. Paul seems to ask for God to give believers power so that they may have Christ dwell in their heart all the time. Not once, not when you're eight, all the time as a regular rhythm of life. It's as if Paul is saying, God, please send the Spirit in such a way that the Holy Spirit would make himself at home in their hearts so that Christ would be and become the center of their affections, their decisions, their behavior, their peace, their joy, so he would be there all in all. But Holy Spirit, you do it because they can't. Don't have Christ pass through their hearts and minds on Sunday morning at 1030. But let him dwell there. Let it be their residence, his normal spot. May he not just hang out in their heart, but may he rule it. Right? We, we get that, right? There's a difference between like, you know, some of my life like takes Jesus into account and, and King Jesus rules my heart. Those are not the same. This is what Paul is praying for. 
Seamlessly, he shifts after asking for power and strength internally. Paul says, uh, this power, I hope, helps root them and ground them in love. So, sorry, step one, give them power by your spirit in their inner being. And may one of the things that this power does be that it grounds them in the love of Christ. John Stott says, love is the soil in which their life is rooted. It is to be the foundation on which their life is built. We think, well, is he talking about love for each other? Like, that would be a side effect, but no, the love of Jesus. Other times when faith feels like a chore, like a hassle, like it's boring, like it's empty duty, like you'd rather not. Those are clear signs that something is off. Those are dash light warnings in your heart. Because as Paul is praying here, to have Christ dwell in our heart, to have the King of glory reside in you and walk with you to comfort you, come on, that's not supposed to be a bad thing. Jesus is in my heart. Like that, That's not supposed to be the way we look at it. It's not a labor to endure. It's not a project to partake in when you feel bad about what happened on Friday. It, it's the king of glory in your heart all the time strengthening you. It's supposed to be glorious, the king of glory in my heart. Refreshing me from the inside out, changing me, walking with me, loving me, whispering back against all the things the enemy tells me about myself, going, no, that's not you, I love you. I get that? Yeah. Paul's praying here, God, please ground them in love. May it be the aroma, may it be the marker of their faith, of what it looks like. May it not be a chore or a burden. You guys, in light of that, how does faith feel this morning? Not because of my sermon, just because of where your faith is at. How does it feel? Is it a chore? Paul goes further, though. Just praying for a grounding of love is not enough for him. He prays earnestly for something that man, I desperately want for us, church. He prays that we would not just know in some sort of mental cognitive capacity, but that we would comprehend, that we would be able to wrap our mind around to a greater degree and look at the words that he tries to use here because we just can't get it. The breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. May they not just be grounded in it, but may, may, may they have this ever-expanding vision of how deep it is and, and, and how high and how, how wide. And just when you think you've gotten to the edge of one side, it's so much bigger. This, this is what he's praying for. Paul's crying out, oh God, your love is inexhaustible and it's never ending. We can't put borders on it. We can't measure it and it cannot be contained. It's deeper than the deepest ocean, higher than the heavens. God, may they just get a bigger picture of your love and then when they see that bigger picture, may they get lost in it. May they lose track of time in it. We throw ourselves into so many things. Would they throw themselves in God's love? But even as they keep diving deeper, still give them a sense that they're never going to find the end. 
Let him keep seeing that it gets bigger. But let him, may it almost be like a beautiful challenge. I will never find the end, but I'll keep looking for it. If you've heard of the, the Challenger Deep Gorge, if you've ever watched a documentary on it, like the Northwest Pacific Ocean, there's just this hole in the earth. It was seven miles down. As far as I know, it's the deepest spot known to man. Um, we can send some radar down there to try and kind of get a picture of what it's like, but we can't actually get there. We've tried. Every time that we try, or scientists try, we, I've never tried, but <laughs> they create a vessel that cannot go deep enough. Why? Because the pressure is too crushing. It's overwhelming. Think about that. Seven miles deep. That's one mile deeper than Everest is tall. But even though we can't get there, it hasn't stopped people from trying, from dreaming of it from marinating on it, from talking about it. See, this is, this is what Paul wants for believers. May they know that your love is unsearchable, but may it never stop them from diving deeper and deeper and deeper into it. May they have this, this, this passion to find a couple feet and a couple feet and a couple feet more of your love. He's getting to something profound here that comes out at the end in verse 19. I'll just say ahead of time, like, I don't even know how to give this words. He's praying that God deepens our knowledge of his measureless love as we keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and being fulfilled and strengthened in it. That we'll be filled with the fullness of God. Like his person would fill us. not just an angry, capricious father, the fullness of who he is would fill us. Created creatures knowing the creator. The love of God is so much greater than we could understand, and yet Paul wants us to dive in and be filled. Here's the, man, as I even struggle words, why does he want us to do that? Because the deeper you dive in, the more you'll finally find the satisfaction that you want. This is what we need. We are on the prowl, the hunt, the search for things to fill our cups. Right, things to give us strength, things to give us joy, things to give us meaning, things to energize us, things to excite us, things to disconnect us. We're always on the search. We can get lost in hobbies. This is mine. Constantly getting lost in the next thing and the next hobby. We can try and lose ourselves in books, jobs, relationships, money, sex, literally endless things we throw ourselves into. We throw ourselves into causes, into political stances, into certain identities. We throw ourselves into a persona that's not even us that we've created and catered online. 
And even though some of the things that we throw ourselves in can be good, they will never satisfy your soul. Look at the book of Romans. They look to created things for what only the creator could give. This is Paul's hope. May they get what they deeply need in you. That's why Paul falls to his knees and desperately prays for us, because we need it. He prays, God, give them power inside and reside in them all the time. Ground them in you and give them the gift of your love so much that it fills to overflowing to the point they go, I'm satisfied. Here's a problem. Like, we talk about our hearts believing in God, and Paul goes, you have such a little weak vision. I want your heart to overflow with him. That's different. May the power of God strengthen you in ways that you never imagined. May it renew you from the inside. There are times that I think we've probably all had the Spirit of God working in us where our heart is just more malleable, and, and it connects to things in different ways. Paul's going, I mean, I, I hope that that would happen at an ever-increasing level in their lives. He says in verse 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more. Right, because if, if we hear, like, let them dive into the unsearchable love, you're like, well, it's just not possible anyway. I was like, well, God can do a whole lot more than you thought. To his, him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you could ask or think. I mean, he, he's pretty clear there. He's got more in him than you could ever ask for. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever, amen. This last part is considered a a doxology, a liturgical praise of God. God has made a way where there seems to be no way for redemption. He has loved, planned, called, saved, redeemed, spiritually dead people. And he arms them with the love of God and the Holy Spirit. We are not left defenseless. And he sends them out to do good works in the world around them. Paul prays that believers would be lit up by this great love given to them by God. That we'd be satisfied and fulfilled. Just imagine the picture where God satisfies you and you can just stop your endless searching. I can just slow down. Why? Because God is greater than all else. And this prayer at the end of praise seems to point back out for us. If we could stop being distracted by being filled up and living the same life of the world, we would have this margin to dream big and pray big for God to work. If God can save any type of person, Not just a Jewish one, that's what we learned in the text last week. If he can awake spiritually dead people, if that's in his bag of tricks, if he can change us from the inside out, I 
He can take creatures that are never satisfied and satisfy their soul. Then what can't he do? Paul's just going to think about it a little bit. He seems to be praising and challenging us at the end. God can do far more, abundantly more, exponentially more. Any of the words you want to put, way, 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 way more that we could ever ask for or we could possibly even wrap our minds around. This is a call for believers. As you dive into and fill up on God, begin to ask for him to work because there's nothing outside of the realm of possibilities for him. Begin to ask God to do amazing things around you and in you for his glory. Right, what does this mean? This does not be like, well, I really want a Porsche. It literally has nothing to do with what he's praying for. Imagine what he could do for his glory and you could walk alongside him. That's what he's talking about. We're really good at throwing up Hail Mary prayers when our life is a dumpster fire. But what if we began to pray that he would do great things through us for his glory in our city and our church? Begin to look out and dream big about how God may use you. Dream about what kind of insane good works and beautiful things he may call you to do. I mean, it's almost a a challenge here. You can't outdream God. Try. That's not a prosperity gospel either. We can't ask him to do too much, so just start dreaming and asking. As you spend time with God, here it is. Listen to him. See what he's telling your heart and ask him to work in those areas and be blown away by what he does. Ask him to do more with you, in you, and through you. Let's just be honest around you. Isn't there a part of you who's like, man, I just want to see him do something amazing? Paul's going, he can. Start praying for it. Throw yourself into him. Start asking and be awed. The never-ending search that the world does and that we tend to do, we'll have to pause for that to work, though. He kind of goes in the last verse. Think about it. Each and every believer, filled up by God, asking God to do something bigger than they could imagine. What beautiful things could happen there. I just think of this room, right? We're not a mega church. Shock. (laughs) What if we did? God, fill me up in you and send me out because of you and for you. There's a part of us, though, right? You're like, yeah. Probably not going to do that, though. Unending well of God's power to fill us up and send us out. That's why Paul says, imagine all generations and all nations doing that. That's an army for God moving out and seeing beauty and redemption. And I'll say before, and I want to kind of stick to it, right? This chapter is still declaration. Paul is not saying that, well, you need to get better at looking for God's love. You need to do better about praying for big things, which is probably true, but that's not necessarily what he's saying here. He is saying, though, there's a fountain of love and grace right there. Do what you will. Right? Unending 
grace, and love. Right there, make your choice. There's no do better. There's no try harder. It's this is what is real if you want it. See, we run from thing to thing and idea to idea and possession to possession, often looking to be rejuvenated or just to escape. And that there's something pure that's available, something sweet, something satisfying. I think of all the metaphors that Jesus kept using, I'm the bread of life. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. All these things over and over, I'm, I'm the vine and you're the branches. This, this continual metaphor of I have what you need. We can tend to get turned around. We're like, well, I just don't feel very happy right now. He must be angry. No. You have to begin asking, well, how does faith feel right now? We've had seasons of joy probably and seasons of distant season where, where Jesus is dwelling in our heart. But if this season feels distant or God feels absent, We've got to understand, when, when we do not feel God, when we're not sensing his love, it is not because he's not present and left. Our sovereign father needs no vacation and needs no sleep. The reality when he feels very distant is not that he is unavailable. Here it is, and this is the one, my repentance. It's because we are not available. That's what Paul's saying. It's right there. Do what you will. So often we just kind of get distracted and we'd rather drink of other things and Paul's praying, oh God, please give them power in you to come and be refilled off of you. See, we tend to be on our phones and online and social media and YouTube and on errands and on autopilot and on a million other things that are all devastating to our souls. We can very easily create a life that simply has no time or energy to experience Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that happen to me. You know me well. I'm the type of person that when I find a target, I lock in hard. You will not get me to move. Right? So whether it's a task that I want to do, if you know me, you think that one was funny, or a hobby that I want to partake in, when I lock my eyes on, there will be nothing that makes me go away from it. I can fixate so thoroughly on things at times that God is literally pushed away. My heart becomes so full and locked in on ordinary things that in that moment, there is no place for Christ to dwell in me. Let me clean up theologically. That doesn't mean in those moments I lose my salvation. But it does mean in that moment, the heart, my, the architecture of my being just has no place for Jesus to strengthen me, to, to empower and strengthen me. We have a limited amount of time and energy. We just need to own it. The world has been forever trying to maximize time and, uh, and, and life hacks and productivity tools. It doesn't matter how many of those employ you have a certain amount of days, a certain amount of hours, and you have a certain amount of mental and spiritual energy. If Christ gets none of that, it will be impossible to be empowered by him, strengthened by him, or feel the love of the Father. We can kind of get in modes where I don't like that I don't know what to tell you. 
I, I guess the only thing I can say is I don't either, but that's why we say someday in glory it won't be a problem anymore. The aim of our heart at times to time, at, from time to time will have to be pointed at the grace of God and the love of Jesus to feel that love. I hope that we would see that. Band, you guys can come back up. This book, right, so far, but God. We are lost and without hope, but God made a way to save us. And now he's available to lavish his love. He didn't just save you and walk away and be like, maybe I'll deal with you in a couple thousand years. He died on the cross, saves you, redeems you, invites you into his family, and says, now I want to dwell in your heart and lavish my love upon you. When we come to the communion table today, here's my hope that you'd be filled by that. That your soul would be nourished by that, that you would be energized, that you would be revived by that, that the Holy Spirit would do what Paul prayed for in the sex. Oh, Holy Spirit, give them power in their inner being. That it would be a jump off point where you would be filled up, but then this week you would long to be filled up more. And here's the beauty. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you can dive into God's love those days as well. And my hope is that we would do that, that we'd experience more of him. Will you stand with me? Father, I pray that you give us a bigger vision of your glory and your goodness. You're what our hearts need. You're everything we need, Father. I pray that you will help us see that. That the illusion that all the things that we're living for around us, that we would begin to, by your spirit, see through those things and put the things in creation back in their right place and find life and love in you, God. May we understand together what it looks like to dwell, have you dwell richly in our heart, King Jesus. I pray for that. We need you. Be glorified. I pray that your table is a place of strength for us and that you would begin to unlock something in us that wants to dive deeper and deeper into your love every day. That for some of us, maybe the cyclical pattern of ignoring you until the wheels are coming off would stop. And for others, that we would begin to dream about what you would do. And that you would do amazing good works for your glory and for your goodness. And that we would get to worship in light of them and praise you for what you've done. I pray that in your name, God. Amen.